What's shaped you over the years? What, what has been the, the shaping factor in your life? Has it been family? Family's been very shaping for me. Maybe it's school or maybe it's work. You know, work, work has a shaping effect on us, doesn't it? The, the things that we do will shape us. And sometimes it's our sports teams, um, Browns fans. You're not going to make the Super Bowl this year. And uh, I'm sorry I had to say it. Where's Becky Icorn? Can I just be the first to say, ha, 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 You know, at work, I was shaped a lot by, um, in, in my legal profession. Um, this past summer, I was talking to one of the lawyers that I worked with. We were talking on the phone, and I found out that Wilbur Lang, uh, Wilbur was the, the partner at the law firm that I worked at, and Wilbur was a pain in the, um, can I say but? Because I don't know any other way to describe him. Uh, Wilbur was a pain, uh, but he was shaping. Wilbur would do things that would drive you absolutely insane as an associate lawyer. But, but what I found in my life that everything, as I gauge lawyers and what it means to be a lawyer and, and, and I, I see those kind of circumstances, it's all seen through the lens of Wilbur Lang. <laughs> and so there's people that shape us. And I, and I hope that the church is a significant shaping environment, that our Sunday school classes, our Sunday school teachers, and, 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 and I believe that as we deal with the sacraments over these next few weeks, the sacraments are meant to be shaping activities. In a lot of ways, this is a follow-up to the Ecclesia series. I mean, we finished Ecclesia, then we went into the uh, uh, the gift or regifted series, and did a Christmas series. Uh, I, I've been shaped by the church. Many of us of you in this room would, would testify with me that you have been shaped by the church. And and we used I used a phrase in the. Um, last series, which, which I'm going to say again because I think it's so important to understand, the church is not an assembly of the perfected. Instead, it is an assembly that is meant to perfect. In other words, this place has an important role in shaping us into the people God has in mind for us to be. That, that no one in this room is finished. That God is still sanctifying. God is still shaping. God is still maturing us in our faith. And, and so we gather together not because we're perfect and not because we have everything all together. We gather together because we are not. And we want God to do something fresh and new in our life. We want Him to continue to grow us. And so when we lean into the church, we lean into God's transforming grace. God can transform us. Amen. A few of you believe that. God can transform us. And, and I'm thankful for the transforming power of God through the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for the transforming power of, of God that He exhibits through His church, through His people. That, that, that you have a role and I have a role in your transformation that, that we transform each other that we grow and we mold each other and so the sacraments and when I talk about sacraments in, in our tradition, in our theological tradition we have two sacraments 
two things that we, we consider a sacred ritual that, that we perform. And it's baptism and communion or Eucharist. If you grew up Roman Catholic, there were seven sacraments, and, and including marriage and, and, and different sacraments that we do not recognize in our tradition. In our tradition, there's two things that we say are sacred that we do, and we believe that these sacraments are transformative. The sacraments are not simply testimony, but transformation. It's more than just a memorial. So some theologies will say, well, it's just, it's just a memorial of something. We believe in our theological tradition that when we receive the sacraments, there's something inherently that happens that transforms us, that, that Christ is present Amen. in the giving of the sacraments. It's sacred, it's important, it's significant. As a matter of fact, in our roots, in, in, in our Wesleyan roots, um, communion was not something that would be done uh, once a quarter or once a month, but would have been done weekly at the very least. And if you read John Wesley's writings, Wesley would be somebody that would advocate three or four times a week of receiving the sacrament of communion. We've been using, we'll be utilizing through this series, and Josh began the series, kicked off the series last week, Rob Staples' book, Outward Sign, Inward Grace. Rob Staples was a Nazarene theologian. Uh, Rob Staples, I believe, was a professor. Maybe, Bob, you know this. I think he is a professor at the, the seminary in Kansas City. And he wrote a book called Outward Sign, Inward Grace. And in this book, when he talked about communion he referred to communion as the the sacrament of sanctification <laughs> And I love that idea. And, and sanctification is this big theological word that we use. But, but as he's using the word, th this is what he means. He says, sanctification in its broadest meaning is the lifelong process by which Christians become the saints they're called to be. Perfecting holiness out of the reverence for God. It is the process of moving by grace towards our destiny. And what is our destiny? It is defined by the imagio deo, the image of God in which human beings were created. And so Staples is saying communion is not simply a ritual or a memorial, but in the, in the receiving of communion, it is a way that God can transform us. He can bring us into the presence of Jesus Christ. And in the presence of Jesus Christ, He can begin to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And he gives five images of communion, and, and there's celebration, and cost, call, connection, and consummation are coming. And last week, if Josh preached what he thought he did, Josh, are you here? Did, did, he's not here, okay. Josh talked about celebration. Did he talk about celebration? Okay. Are you just saying that, just to get me to move on? So I did... Um, I did the devotion for the um, for upward at uh, BTY, BTY, which is Kevin Truitt's basketball thing for the kindergartners and first graders. And I, I got to tell you, you know, as, as difficult as times to communicate to you guys, it is very difficult for me to communicate to kindergartners and first graders. They really don't care what I have to say. And so I'm, I'm giving my devotion, and I, you know, I give it a little short when I'm, I'm usually pretty short. And then I, I'm saying, "Are you guys ready to play?" Yay! You guys have excited? Yay! Do you want me to shut up so you can play basketball? Yay! I told the coaches, I said, I'd never ask that of my church. Are you ready for me to shut up so you can? No, I'm not going to. 
So this week we're going to talk about cost. The price Jesus paid. And it's fitting that we sang the, the, the song for the cross just before I began to preach. And there's a bridge to that song, and it, it came up. We didn't sing the bridge, and I don't think we've sang it the last couple times. But the bridge says this, Though my sins were scarlet, you have made me white as snow. <laughs> and so through the cross, we, we recognize that the cost that Jesus paid, the price that he paid on the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus matters. Peter says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Have I, did I just turn it off? Or are we good? Am I still on? There we go. <laughs> it's time to go home. Yeah. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you've been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. <laughs> you know, there, there was a price that was paid by Jesus. And communion recognizes that price. One of the things we do in communion is we recognize that it was through his broken body and his spilt blood that our relationship with our Heavenly Father was restored. And when we consider the price that he paid, it speaks of the darkness of our sin, the depth of our depravity and the price that Jesus was willing to pay, the distance that Jesus had to go to restore us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. As we consider that, we consider not only the price that Jesus was willing to pay, but the value that our Heavenly Father holds us in. How He sees you and I that he was willing to give his one and only son to tie on a cross for you and I. Now, now, the Old Testament was looking to this sacrifice. I'm not sure if the Old Testament readers understood the mission of Jesus, but Isaiah says it like this, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For I grew up before him like a tender shoe and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. It did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom he, the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, put him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, 
He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. <laughs> Isaiah gives us this beautiful image many hundreds of years before Jesus was born of what Jesus would come and do. With his stripes, we are healed. By his blood, we have been saved. By his death, our relationship with our Heavenly Father has been restored. And in communion, we come face to face with the suffering servant. Now there's an ancient story, an interesting story of, of St. Peter, and you know, it, it, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I think it illustrates something that's, that's highly significant for us to understand. Peter is, a, is apparently escaping Rome in this story, and, and, and he's escaping crucifixion, and he's escaping his cross, and he's escaping his death, and as he's leaving Jerusalem, or as he's leaving Rome, he comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus asked him where he's going. He says, well, I'm leaving. I'm escaping. And, and, and Peter asked him, where, where are you going? He goes, well, I'm going to take your cross again. <laughs> and so Peter returns and goes and dies on a cross. See, we come face to face with the crucified Jesus. It forces us to see that he has something in mind for us. I, I love this song, So Will I, the new Hillsong song. So will I. God of salvation, you chased down my heart through all my failure and pride. On a hill you created the light of the world, abandoned in darkness to die. And as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. Where you lost your life so I could find it here. If you left the grave behind, so lie. I can see your heart and everything you've done, every part designed in a work of art called love. If you gladly chose surrender, so will I. I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. <laughs> like you would again a hundred billion times. But what measure could amount to your desire? You're the one who never leaves the one behind. <laughs> I'm thankful for the cross. I'm thankful that when I look at communion... When I look at these elements, I can remember and I can focus on a Savior who was willing to be crucified, to be broken and beaten for my sins, not his sins. For your sins, not his sins. I hope everybody had a good Christmas. Everybody have a good Christmas? Yeah? Hey, you get gifts and, 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 and every gift demands some type of response. Um, you know, the, the, the size of the gift... Will, will warrant the, you know, the, the response. You know, if somebody gives me a sweater at Christmas time, I'm like, thank you for the sweater, right? If somebody gives me a new SUV, uh, it's a bigger thank you, right? I'm human. Don't act like I'm weird in saying that. If they pull an SUV in front of your house, say, hey, this is our gift, you'd be going, thank you, right? The size of the gift will determine the thanks. Jesus' sacrifice requires a response.
That, that, that there's a response that should be inherent in God's people because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Next week we'll explore this fuller as we talk about the call because his sacrifice drives our call. And next week we'll focus on the ideal that because of Jesus' sacrifice, he calls us to live a life of sacrifice. But this week, as we consider the cost, we're going to consider something else. We're going to talk about confession. When we consider the cost that Jesus paid, our response is confession in the areas of life that God is pointing to our, our lives and bringing conviction. Earlier we talked about how sanctification is this lifelong process. And I, and I fully believe that everyone in this room, including this pastor, God is still growing me. And there's areas of my life where God is pointing out and saying, Paul, I want better there. As we just finished the re-gifted series, i got to tell you, I, I'm still in do justice Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. I still have those words resonating in my mind. And God is calling me to more in regard to doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with Him. And I believe in your life, in everyone's life, there's areas where God is calling us to more. And confession is essential to spiritual growth. I talked about confession. I, I can't remember what church it was in, whether it was the church I was at before here or this church. But, but if I talked about confession, after I talked about confession, somebody, some younger person in the church went to their parents and go, well, I thought confession was just for Catholics. <laughs> no, folks. Confession is for people who truly want to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that process by which God can shape us and transform us and do more in our life. Now, when you talk about confession, confession and conviction work together. And confession and conviction are good. We, um, Spencer's a senior, and he's, he's down to the last few games uh, of basketball. He'll, he'll be done after this year, more than likely. And, and you know, it's, it's been a long haul. I've been coaching boys, watching boys play basketball or soccer or baseball for a long time. And until some of us, one of them give us a grandson or a granddaughter old enough to play those sports, I'll be able to go to games and not get so upset. And that'll be a great thing. Um, but he's coming on to the last games. And, they, and, and the advice, my boys, they, they would come to me from time to time. And they'd say stuff like, man, the coach hates me. <laughs> Well, the coach is yelling at me. And I'd always say this to them. I'd say, listen, you need to worry when the stop, coach stops yelling at you. <laughs> when the coach no longer cares what you do, that is not a good sign. And it's the same with conviction. I would be concerned... I would be spiritually concerned if there's never any moments where God convicts us of something more he has in mind for us. Conviction is good. Now, now our natural tendency, and, and, and I believe this is true, our natural tendency is to justify, to say, well, it's just they're wrong and I'm right. Our natural tendency is to blame others. 
our natural tendency is to harden our hearts. And we become cynical or we become bitter. Being cynical, being bitter, those are not fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> I don't think Galatians includes either of those. And I'm concerned in the church that we can be so caught up in the culture and comparing ourselves to others that we begin to resist or ignore the Spirit's conviction in our life to move us to more. I hunger. I want God to convict me of where he wants me to grow. I'm reminded of the old, and it's really weird to say, the old Keith Green song. Uh, he's probably close to 30 years old now. If you don't know, Keith Green was probably the father of contemporary worship music. And uh, Keith Green was a, a Jewish man that, that converted to Christianity. And, and as I understand the story, his, his family basically disowned him when he became Christian. And Keith Green went all over the, the world singing and, and, and never charged for concerts. And, he, and I believe he died in a plane crash. Anybody know for sure? Plane crash. And when he died in a plane crash, he, he, his family was basically bankrupt because he hadn't been receiving money. And so a lot of his songs were produced simply to support his wife and his family. But in his old song, My Eyes Are Dry, Keith Green says, my eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your love. There's often times in my life where those words come to mind. Because the natural tendency of this heart is to grow hard and to grow dry unless I allow the Spirit to have free reign to convict me and to draw me to the point of confession. I would be concerned if our holy God never speaks to you in conviction. If He's never moved you to the point of tears, if He's never moved you to the point of brokenness, if God has never caused you to, to look at other folks and begin to see that you're not as impassioned towards them as you should be, I'd be concerned. It's because conviction and confession is the avenue of transformation. That in conviction and confession, God brings us to this point of transformation and communion. Communion should bring us to the point of conviction and confession. See, confession requires us to acknowledge our failures, our sins, 
and our shortcomings. And this is positive, folks. When we recognize our shortcomings, our failures, and our sins, it's, it's a recognition of a need for change or growth. In recognizing these things, we're saying God has more in mind for me. That, that God wants to do something more in my life. And we're saying, not only that, we're saying, God, I believe you can change me. That you can transform me. So confession demonstrates our faith in God's ability to transform us. It's a faith thing. It's not a lack of faith. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. So I believe that a theology that somehow lessens the importance of conviction and confession and growth by those means is a weak and a broken theology. And it leads to a pharisaical people that, that are no longer shaped by the Spirit, but they're shaped by their culture, and they no longer allow the Spirit to move in a fresh and a new way. Now, confession is a private practice and a communal practice. The, the, the Bible speaks of corporate confession. It speaks of, of, of confessing our sins to one another. And so what I want you to do right now is I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them your worst sin. No, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> That'd make us real awkward, wouldn't it? Yeah. Of course, there's, we understand that in this corporate aspect of confession, that's the importance of relationships. It's the importance of small groups. It's the importance of serving with people. It's the importance of, grow, of plugging ourselves into these places where we can get to know people and we know who we can trust and who we can't. Who, who will faint backwards if we tell them how we're feeling? Who will walk with us? Who will keep our confession private? It's important that we know these things. You know, this is not an invitation for people to stand one by one and bear their soul to everybody in this room, right? But we believe that it's important. We believe that we need to find people that we can trust in celebration of discipline. Richard Foster writes this about public confession. He says, confession is a difficult discipline for us because we're, we all too often view the believing community as a fellowship of the saints because we view it, uh, before we view it as a fellowship of the sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we're isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we're the only ones who've not stepped onto the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. But if we know that the people of God are first a fellowship of the sinners, we are free to hear the unconditional call of God's love and to confess our needs openly before our brothers and sisters. We know we are not alone in our sin. The fear and the pride that cling to us like barnacles cling to others also. We are sinners together. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. And so there's this, and I believe he's, he's hit on something that's true. There is this belief that in this place, 
I'm the only one that struggles. I'm the only one with needs. And the truth is, surrounding you in this room are people who need to grow in their faith with Jesus Christ. There is no one that he is finished with here. Confession, private and corporate, brings transformation. And so, communion. As we come to the sacrifice, it reminds us that we need a Savior. We need a Savior from the beginning to the end. Until I die and stand before my Heavenly Father, I need a Savior. I am in the process of being saved and being sanctified, and I need the transforming power of Jesus Christ for that process to be complete. And the good news is it is. That, that, that I know in my life that I have this assurance that because of what Jesus did on the cross, God will finish what He has started in my life. This is from Wesley's. And I'm not going to ask you to stand for this. We'll receive communion in a second. This is from Wesley's Covenant Service. John Wesley's. It's a, it's a, um, a moderation of the language, I'm sure. We got this up there. There's a leader section. Did I put that on the slides? What's the next slide? Okay. I will be the leader. Okay? And you will be the people. And so I will read this, and then you guys will read the people. This is, this is a responsive reading. Most of you have done these before. But I'll read my part, and then you read your part, okay? We're those who seek to live as true disciples of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we fall short. Let's now examine ourselves before God, humbly confessing our sins and submitting our hearts so that we do not deceive ourselves and cut ourselves away from God. Let us pray people. We now confess to you our sins. Please forgive us for the poverty of our worship, for the selfishness of our prayers, for our inconsistency and unbelief, for the ways we neglect worship, fellowship and your grace, for our hesitation to tell others about Christ, for the ways we deceive others. Forgive us that we've been unwilling to overcome evil with good, and we've not been ready to carry our cross. Forgive us that we've not helped, we've not allowed your love to work through us to help others, and that we've not made their suffering our own. Forgive us for the times when instead of working for unity, we made it hard for others to live with us because of our lack of forgiveness, inconsiderate judgment, and quick criticism. Forgive us also for these sins that we silently confess to you now. Let's pray together in silence. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come before you at this table of grace, we acknowledge we need your salvation.